following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Matthew chapter 6, we're continuing our mini-series today on New Year's resolutions that we should all be making this year. Last week we began our series with resolution number one, which was what? Read your Bible daily. Very good. I gave you, uh, in case you weren't here, I want to recap it because there's a little bit of connection to today. I gave you six reasons about why you should be reading your Bible daily from Psalm 19. Number one, you should read it daily because it's our life, which means it restores our souls. When our souls are feeling uh, dry, they're feeling cold, they're feeling dead, where do we turn? You're not going to find the refreshment that your soul needs from music. I mean, while music can be refreshing in many senses, I could have continued singing. If I didn't have a cough, I could have continued singing longer this morning. Um, but where we ultimately need to turn is to God's Word. That's where we find the life we need. I said, number two, it's our wisdom. It helps us see the world as God does. Number three, it's our joy because the Scriptures are right and our hearts find joy in what's right. Number four, it's our guide. It helps us know how to live, how to obey God more, to uh, follow sin and give in to sin less. Number five, it's our foundation because the scriptures never change and everything else does. Okay, just to make sure that was very clear from last week. There is no person, no thing, no church, no relationship, nothing in this life that doesn't change. The only thing that never changes is God's word. So that's why it's our foundation. We build our life on it. Number six is our confidence because it's true and righteous altogether. And I told you when I went over those six things that there was nothing new there, right? You know that stuff. If you've been in church at all in your life, you've heard those truths or those kinds of truths numerous times. All I was really giving you were some reminders about things you already know. Of course, the problem is, is even though we know we're supposed to do something, doesn't mean that we're actually going to what? Do it, okay? We know we're supposed to do it, but we don't. We struggle with the doing it part. And so what I attempted to do to help in that was to give you six more things that would help you with the how, okay? It was six things you should not be doing with your Bible reading in 2013. Again, I'm just going to review them very quickly. I said, number one, don't do it without a plan, because if you do it without a plan, you're what? Stupid. Thank you, whoever remembered. You're stupid if you do it without a plan, because you won't continue, okay? You got to have some kind of plan to follow. It doesn't matter what the plan is. I didn't tell you what to do. It just have something that you know you're going to do, and it'll help you stick with it. Number two, don't overextend. Make your plan reasonable. If you read one chapter a day every day, that's better than nothing. I'd rather you do that than read 50 chapters a day one and be so burnt out by that that you never came back to it the rest of the year. So do something that you can manage. Don't overextend. Number three, uh, don't do it alone. Because if you do it alone, most likely you will quit. You will fail. You need people to help you, to hold you accountable. And I really hope this week that some of you, if not all of you, I should say all of you, I shouldn't like assume that you won't do what I ask, that all of you went and found someone that you could read with this week that would keep you accountable throughout the year and, and help you stay on this resolution. Number four, I said don't just do it whenever, because if you just do it whenever, it won't happen. You need a set time. And just in case, uh, this thought came to me afterwards, just in case there's something, I suggested that you tell your family when your time is, okay? So like, hey, wife, kids, husband, kids, brother, sister, whatever, for the next 20 minutes from 7 to 7.30 every morning, leave me alone. Some of you might be thinking, well, I don't want to 
I don't want to show off what I'm doing. It's not showing off what you're doing. You're not, hopefully. It's not your attempt to be proud and rub it in other people's faces, what you do in terms of spending time with the Word. It's just simply asking those who are closest to you to be considerate of that time so that you can stick with it. And it's a good way of letting them help you stick with your time as well. So don't let that hold you back. Number five, don't live as if Paul lied. In other words, read the Old Testament this year. And then number six, and most important of them all, don't turn a means of grace into a means of merit. Because that's what this time is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a time where you come and you open up your heart and your life to what the Spirit can do in you through the Word. It's a means of grace where God, in His grace, will work in your life and change you to be more like Christ. If you take that and you turn it into a means of merit, and if you don't understand what that means, I'll simply remind you, it's a means by which you begin to judge yourself or others. I, I am so spiritual because I read my Bible every day. You've turned it into a means of merit. Well, I read my Bible daily, but she doesn't, and now you think you're better than them? It's, it's a means of merit. Don't turn what's supposed to be a means of grace into a means of legalism for judging yourself or others. If you do that, you miss the point. I, I, hope, I hope that was helpful to you, and I sincerely hope that Monday morning you started this that you took this resolution as your own. My, my purpose with all of this, with this entire series, is really just to encourage us in a number of areas that we need to grow in here in 2013. All of us, as believers individually and as a church corporately, I want us to, to, to grow in these areas, and reading the Scriptures regularly is definitely the number one area we want to grow in. Well, today we're moving on to resolution number two. And uh, if you read your bulletin, you already know what this one is. I'm not trying to surprise anybody here. Resolution number two is that we will actively pursue prayer in 2013. Actively pursue prayer. Now, because I think the spending time in the Word and praying are connected ideas, I decided to treat them uh, in a very, very similar manner. We're going to look today at the same two things we looked at last time, both why we should pursue prayer and how we should pursue prayer, or again, to be more accurate, how we shouldn't pursue prayer. I'm going to give you some don'ts again. We're going to look at uh, the whys, the how, and everything will pretty much be the same with one big exception. Last week, when I started answering the why question, I took you immediately to Psalm 19, and we spent the entirety of that question there in Psalm 19, letting the scriptures answer that particular question for us. But when we got to the how question, I, I tried to make that more practical, just practical suggestions, not necessarily biblical suggestions, just practical suggestions of what you should be doing. I'm flip-flopping that this week, okay? So when we answer the why question, I'm going to give you, and I cringe a little bit about saying, saying this, I'm going to give you what I believe to be are three self-evident reasons of why you should obey the Scriptures, or why you should pray, which is obeying the Scriptures, why you should pray. And I, I say I cringe a little bit because there's a danger in me saying that they're self-evident. In other words, I could take the time to walk us through the scriptures on these three points and help us see them all there, and that would obviously be good. And if I had more time today, I would do that. But we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together, and my time is a little truncated today. And so I'm hoping that for these three reasons, we will all equally agree that they are self-evident, okay? And if you're, they're not self-evident to you, I apologize. When we get to the how question, though, we want to take some time to slow down 
and see what the scriptures teach us about how we should pray. Because again, just like last week, I feel like this is where we struggle. I I know why I should do it, but I struggle in the how. Well, thankfully, Jesus must have known that this is where we were going to struggle because he talks about it a lot. And we're given a lot of instructions about how to do it. And so we want to take some time to do that when we get to that question. All right, so now you know where we're going. Let's jump in, start by looking at why we should pursue prayer. I want to give you three reasons why we should pursue prayer. Write them down if you want to. Number one, we should pursue prayer because it shows humility and dependence. These are my three self-evident reasons. You'll see if they are indeed self-evident. And thinking about this particular part uh, of the sermon, I began by asking myself why I don't pray. And as I thought about that and meditated on that this week, the number one answer that came to my mind was either because A, I don't want to, or B, I don't think I need to. Now, I don't know that I ever say that or that I ever actively think those very words and thoughts, but in effect, this is the main number one reason why I don't pray. Either I don't want to come to God and ask for his help, or I just don't see the need. I can handle it on my own. I've got this. I'm good. I'll, I'll come to God when I need him for something. And at that moment, and then I'll ask him for his help. But, but the reality of the situation is, how much can we really truly do on our own? Not a trick question. Nothing. Nothing, Psalm 127, if you wanted a, a passage to go with this one. We can't do anything on our own. Whether I realize that or not, whether I admit that or not, the truth of the matter is is that I am always dependent on God for every single thing I do. From the next breath I take to the biggest, most important issue facing me right now in my life, at every single moment I'm dependent on God for everything. And prayer is our way of showing that. It shows that that's really how we feel. If you think about it, Prayer is really an exercise in humility. It's it's a way for us to uh, uh, acknowledge certain things, two things specifically. Number one, that God is bigger, stronger, and wiser than we are. And number two, that we need him. See, it's an expression of pride for us not to pray. It's an expression of arrogance to not come to our Heavenly Father and seek his help and guidance on every aspect of life. And so in 2013, I think we should pursue prayer more. Not, not only as a way of expressing that humility and that dependence that we feel, but as a way of cultivating it as well. Because the, the practice of prayer itself reminds us of our dependence on God. Number two, second reason why we should pursue prayer, is because it shows our belief. And if you're not clear on what I mean by that, um, I would just say this. It's funny to me how strongly... Many of us in this room would defend our belief in the one true invisible God, and yet we don't talk to him. Well, I believe that that there's a God. I just haven't talked to him in a few months, but I know he's there if I need him. Well, um, there's a slight problem with that in my mind. In fact, if, if people were to apply a test to us to say, okay, well, when do you believe in God? Let's, let's look at every time you pray, and we'll use that as the litmus test of when you actually believe that there really is a God. I think most of us would believe in God at three occasions in our life. Number one, when we eat 
and that maybe only occasionally. Number two, on Sunday mornings, when we're kind of guilted into it by everyone around us. And number three, when something bad happens in our life. If, if that's the only times we pray effectively, then what are we saying about what we really believe? You, your words can say what they want all week long. But if you believe that God is there and you don't talk to him, what do you really believe? That's the question I'm asking. I want to pursue prayer this year much more vigorously and regularly so that my beliefs can be fleshed out through this particular means of a relationship with God. And number three, I think we should pursue prayer more because it shows our love. It shows our love. And my thought here is both simple and, not to overstate it, I think devastating, and not my own, by the way. But how can we claim to love a God that we do not talk to? If I ask you, do you love God? Almost everyone be like, I love God. Love him. It's great. Have you prayed in the past week? Anything more than the perfunctory prayers of what the normal Christian life may contain? How can we claim to love a God that we don't talk to? Now, I'm not necessarily questioning anyone's love of God in this comment. I'm just drawing a general observation that we cannot claim to love God if we haven't pursued him in prayer at all in the past few months. It's difficult to do. And, and please understand, I get, I get that prayer is just one expression of love for God. There are more. I understand that. So I'm not trying to pin it all on this one thing alone. I'm just simply drawing a conclusion that in any other human relationship of life, this would be a truth, wouldn't it? I mean, wives, if your husband never talks to you, but he says he loves you, do you have a problem with that? Oh, yeah, someone's in trouble. <laughs> Husbands, if your wife never talked to you, would you really believe she loved you? Like, I'd like to try. Uh, I mean, any other relationship. That was not a comment to Jamie, just by the way. I'm get myself in trouble for later. Um, in any other human relationship of life, we would get this, wouldn't we? If you say you love someone, but you never talk to them, there's a problem here. You can't claim to love someone you don't want to have a relationship with. And so when I ask the questions of why we should pursue prayer, these are my three self-evident, I believe, reasons about why we should be praying because it, it shows our humility and our dependence. It shows our beliefs and it shows our love. Now, I've assumed a lot in just this quick little section here. I've assumed that you agree with me on these things, or that most of you do, and I've also assumed that as a result, most of you hearing this will, in fact, want to, you do, in fact, want to grow in prayer in 2013. I'm assuming that you want to become more humble, that you want to express your dependence on God more. I'm assuming that you want to show your belief more, and I'm assuming that you want to show your love for God more. The question, again, is how do we do it? How should we pursue prayer this coming year? Or, as I've already clarified, how shouldn't we do it? Okay, I'm following the same pattern as last time. So I want to give you five ways. Take notes. They're not in your bulletin this week. Five ways that you should pursue prayer or should not pursue prayer, however you want to take note of it, in 2013. Number one way you shouldn't do it is you should not make it a ritual don't make it a ritual. I've asked you to turn to Matthew 6, and I uh, want you to look at a, a section here on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about prayer. And, and I'm going to kind of piecemeal it. I hope you forgive me. I know this isn't our normal 
manner of doing it, but we're going to kind of come back and forth. So hold your place there over the next few minutes. We're going to look at several things here. And in case you're wondering before I get to it, I forgot. There are two reasons why I picked the five don'ts that I've picked today. One, they're biblical. Like there's, I'll give you the actual passages that explain why you shouldn't do what I'm saying not to do. But number two, it seems to me that these five things seem to be one of some of the biggest things that people struggle with in prayer. Like if I had any area that I had to guess that people have come to me over the past five years and said, I'm, I'm, I don't know this, or can you teach me about this, or can you help me in this area? This would make my top three, how to pray. I cannot tell you how many people have come to me. And so if you're in this room and you're one of those people, this is not aimed at you. There's lots of people who have asked this question, so I picked it for these reasons. God's truth will help us with this. And the first truth that we need to address is that prayer was never meant to be a ritual. And in Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching the crowds what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He spent some time talking about prayer. Look at verse 7, if you will. Jesus says to them, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, this is one of those rare occasions where I actually prefer the King James Version translation more than the English Standard Version that I'm reading from. Because who remembers what the phrase used for empty phrases is in the King James? Do you remember what it said? Anybody? What? Vain repetitions. Yeah, someone else might have said it too, but Randy gets credit. Vain repetitions, all right? I like that phrase better because I feel like it, it conveys the idea much more clearly. Jesus doesn't want our prayers filled with vain repetitions, empty words and phrases that convey nothing more than a futile sense of religiosity on our part. We just say them because we've always said them. We've always heard them said by others. You're like, can you give me an illustration? Yeah, I'll give you an easy one. People, when they pray for food, do this all the time. Don't raise your hand on this one. I was about to ask, but I'm not going to. Probably everybody, I would guess. But how many of you have either said yourself or heard someone else say, dear God, please bless this food that we're about to receive to the nourishment of our body or some version of that, okay? We probably have all, yeah, Ed, Ed's done it, he said. We've all done that. What does that mean? God bless this food to the nourishment of my body. You're, you're sitting there, you're eating a chimichanga. And you're like, God, please bless this chimichanga to the nourishment of my body. I can tell you right now, there is nothing about a chimichanga that will bless your body. Nothing. You're at McDonald's with your children, and you're like, okay, kids, bow your heads. Dear Lord, please bless this chicken-like nugget and these fries, which do not decompose naturally to my children's bodies. Amen. Um, On a side note, uh, how many of you know Tim Hawkins, the Christian comedian? Okay, some of you already know where I'm going with this. Normally, I, I think Christian comedians are stupid, okay? I don't like them. They're not funny normally, but Tim Hawkins is funny, and he has a bit in one of his routines where he's talking about how we want God to make up for our bad choices sometimes, and he uses this as his illustration. Be like, okay, let's pray. Dear God, please bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. Please bless this bag of Cheetos and this jumbo Dr. Pepper that I'm about to receive. Lord, somehow make it nourish something in me. Uh, Maybe, Lord, if you can, change the molecular structure of it as it's going down. Turn the Cheeto into a carrot stick. Or if you won't do that, Lord, if it's not your will, please place a hedge of protection around my pancreas. He does it way better than I. He keeps going. It's so, so funny. But he's right. He's picking out 
one of the silly, silly things that we as believers say all the time and give no thought to. You know what that is? It's an empty phrase. It's a vain repetition of prayer that means absolutely nothing. And it doesn't just have to be the prayer you pray around food. It can happen all the time. How many, I, I could probably, I, I won't, I'm going to stop going with this one. All I'm saying to you is don't pray this way. It, it makes prayer dead. It makes prayer meaningless. If all you're doing is parroting phrases that have no meaning to you or the people listening, do you think God is impressed by it? No. So if you want to grow in your prayer life in 2013, stop making a ritual out of it. Start just talking to God naturally. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Number two, don't do it only at set times. Now, this is different than last week, isn't it? Last week, I said, don't just do it whenever. You need to pick a time that you're going to read the word. And now this week, when it comes to prayer, I'm saying it, don't pick a time. Now, is there, let me stop. Is there anything wrong with picking a time regularly to pray? No, there's nothing wrong with that. It's examples of it in the scriptures. You can certainly do it. But as I look at the general tenor of scripture, this is not what I see. I see passages like Romans 12, 12, where Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. He doesn't want you just to pray at 7 o'clock in the morning and then you're, you're good the rest of the day, like you've checked off that box and so now you don't have to do it anymore. No, he wants it to be constant. Or if that's not clear enough, here's 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Don't stop. Now, he doesn't mean by that that, you know, you're like, <laughs> use McDonald's a moment ago, you pull up to the drive through window and you're like, I've got to pray without ceasing. Dear Lord, please help this worker to know I want a Big Mac and a large fry and a Dr. Pepper, amen. You know, that's not what he's talking about. He simply means that your heart should be so full of love for God and dependence on God that when it's jostled in the everyday doings of life, what spills over the brim is prayer. What spills over the brim of your heart when the everyday occurrings of life jostle that thing? Anger, frustration, annoyance. It's not what not what God wants from us. He wants us to be constant in this thing, to pray without ceasing, not just doing it at set times, but all day long showing our dependence on him. Number three, don't just keep it to yourself. Don't just keep prayer to yourself. Now, I need to make sure you understand what I do and don't mean here, because there's two different ways the scriptures, you might interpret the scriptures on this particular question, and both are right, and I'll show you here in just a second. If you look back at Matthew chapter 6, you look at verse 5, Jesus says this, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Who's he talking about there? The Pharisees, okay? You must not be like the hypocrites, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, you they have their reward. Jesus watches the practice of these guys who go out in the street with their robes and they want to be seen and they stand on the street corners, oh Lord, I love you so much and I'm so great and this is how they, they live their life. And Jesus says, okay, they got what they wanted. They have their reward. They got people to see them. What does Jesus tell us to do in, in, in contrast to that? Where does he tell us to pray in that passage? In the closet? Not literally, necessarily, but not to be... Pr- 
praying in such a way that we're trying to draw attention to ourselves, to try to place our spirituality in whatever sense you think of that on display for others to see. And so when I say to you, don't keep it to yourself, I'm not attempting to to contradict what Jesus is saying here as if you should, you know, go stand up right here in the middle of the service, like, hold on, everybody, I just need to pray, I want you to see it. Okay, that's not what I mean at all. What I do mean is very similar to what we see all over the scriptures in terms of believers praying for one another and letting them know. You see an example of it, and I, I chose Colossians because we were in that book a couple years ago. But you see an example here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul tells the Colossians, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. He's just letting them know, I pray for you. I do it regularly. He even tells them what he's praying for. You drop down to verse 9, you see it again. He goes, and so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's, it's the same thing. He wants them to know. And I think that this example is a good one for us to follow. If you're going to go through all the trouble to pray for another brother or sister in Christ, let them know. Not to draw attention to yourself, not to make you the center, but to let them know that you love them enough to bring their name, their needs before our Heavenly Father. It will encourage their heart and it will encourage yours as well. That's what I mean by that. Number four, don't act and talk like someone you're not. Go back to Matthew 6. This is another one of my pet peeves. I have many, but this is another one I'm going to bring up. For some people, or for some reason, people, it seems to me, have come to the belief that in order to be an effective prayer warrior, to use a phrase from the past, um, that they must speak like Shakespeare. You know, dear God, I bring mine requests before thee because thou art holy. And they, they, they want to talk like this and feel like this is what you have to do to be an effective prayer. And yet, that's not how Jesus taught us to pray. And the reason I bring you back to Matthew 6, particularly verses 9 to 13, is what is that, that passage right there in verses 9 to 13 typically called? Okay, the Lord's Prayer. And when we think of the Lord's Prayer, if you weren't looking at your Bible and I said, give me the first line of the Lord's Prayer. Let's try it as a uh, spur of the moment. On count of three, give me the first line of the Lord's Prayer from, from memory. One, two, three, go. Art and thy. Oh, stop. Okay. Art and thy. Why did you say it that way? What? That's what the King James Version said, and so and that's how we've memorized it. That's how it's been sung. That's, you know, we've heard it this way our whole lives, and so we just assume this is how God wants us to talk. Let's look at the ESV version of that same prayer just to prove a point. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And leave us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, here's my question, and it may be a silly one, but I think it's helpful. Why did the ESV writers leave all the these and the thous out of this passage? Because it's not there. Jesus didn't talk these and thous. When the King James translators translated it, people may have used these and thous, and that's why they wrote it that way. But most likely, when Jesus said these words to his disciples, 
He was just using the common everyday language that they would have used. In other words, he just talked like a normal person. So guess what I learned from that, from this particular example, is Jesus is teaching us how to pray. Just talk like a normal person to God. Again, this is one of those ones that people come to me and say, I don't know how to pray, I don't know what to say. And I understand that to a point, and there's another part of me that doesn't, because I'm like, just say whatever. <laughs> just be yourself. Just talk to him. There's not a formula to follow. There's not verbiage you have to use. There's no particular uh, uh, accent that has to be inserted into this thing, okay? Just talk to him. Just act and talk like yourself. God knows your heart. Don't be anything else. And then number five, and perhaps most important to me because it's been one of the ones that I've struggled with the most, don't hide your real thoughts and needs. Don't hide your real thoughts and needs from God. I'm constantly amazed at my own heart on this particular point, okay? So I'll, I'll, I'll have something, okay, some issue, some thing going on in my life, and for whatever reason, like, I don't want to tell God about it, because if I don't tell him, of course, he won't know, right? <laughs> or or I, I'll, you know, be thinking something I need, but I don't want to ask God for it because I don't want to bother him with it, because, you know, he's got other things to do. How stupid is that? Again, I don't, I don't ever actively think those words necessarily or even those thoughts. But if I examine what I do and why I do it, that's really what's at the root. That I have this feeling that somehow if I don't tell God about all my deepest, darkest secrets, he won't know. If I don't want to bother him with what I need, I'll just kind of keep it out of the way. But that is not anything like what we see in Scripture. Again, Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, Jesus says, Don't be like them, the Pharisees. Because your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask Him. There's nothing you bring to Him that He's not already aware of. There's nothing in your heart that He doesn't already fully know. He knows it better than you know it. So don't hide it. That's, that's silly to do that. Or, or look at Romans 8.26. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't always know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself will intercede for us with groanings too deep for words. He's saying if you're a believer and the Spirit is in you, there's already a communication line open between the Spirit and the Father. He already knows what you need, the deep things of your heart. You may not even be aware of them. But for the ones you are aware of, kind of hint, if the Spirit and the Father are already communicating on this, it's probably okay, just go ahead and say it. Or Philippians 4, 6, passage that... Dave read from earlier. Don't be anxious about anything. And, and there's a, here's a, a, the Greek word anything here means anything. So don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, just let your requests be made known to God. He can handle them. He, he knows us better. He's my all-knowing heavenly father who loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me. What can't I bring him now? What else could I possibly ask for that would be more valuable than the life of his perfect son? I can't think of anything that would, be, that would surpass that. And so if you're struggling to pursue prayer, all I ask you to do is to take these things to heart. To, to not make prayer a ritual this year, just to not only do it at set times, to try to cultivate the act of praying all day long, to not... Uh, keep it to yourself, to not act and talk like someone you're not, and to not hide your real thoughts and needs from God because he already knows. And if we do these things or don't do these things, however you want to look at the, the, the ideas here, 
it will help us actively pursue prayer this year. And so here's my question, just like last week, okay? I want you to commit. Uh, every, every message is going to end like this. I want you to commit that tomorrow, when you wake up, today, on your way home even, that you're going to pursue this resolution this year to actively pursue prayer so that we individually and we as believers can be a people of prayer this year. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we struggle so much in this area. We, we have all this baggage that we have brought into the Christian life with us, perhaps from churches we've been in, in the past, our families, or just our own sinfulness and, and silliness. The fact of the matter is, Lord, you did not intend for this thing to be complicated. You, you love us. And it's that love that you have for us that has opened up the door so that now through the death, through the blood of Jesus, we can enter your throne room boldly and let our requests be made known. We can commune with you. Your spirit is in us constantly communing on our behalf. What an amazing thought. And yet we sit here as people who act like we're afraid to come talk to you. Father, will you help us this year not be like that? Will you help us this year to pursue prayer like we never have before, to, to avoid the ritualistic nature of it, to be thinking about what we say, not just to get into a, a, a rut, a routine, a habit of words that mean nothing to us. We've never even thought what, they, what they're about. Will you help us to not keep it to ourselves this year, but to be praying for one another and in a humble way, in a godly way, to let it be known? Lord, will you help us this year to cultivate that dependence on you that prayer gives us, that shows in our hearts that we will see ourselves as always in need of you. And Lord, will you grow our love of you this year so that as we come to the end of 2013 and we look back, we will see that by your grace, it's your grace, it's not us pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, it's by your grace that you have taken us and made us more like Jesus through these resolutions. There. The resolutions themselves are nothing. It's the truths of your word that are behind them that have power. And so, Lord, make us more like you this year, we ask. Help us to be a people of prayer in 2013. In Jesus' name, amen.